coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Yeah, I, how many times have I drug my tail between my legs into that Monday back day men's stag meeting at 12.15 and raised my hand as the new guy? And they're all just like, well, Danny's back again. We're glad you're not dead, dude. Nice to see you. And then, you know, I get super offended when people would say, what do you think you're going to do different this time? Nothing upset me more. But the truth was and why it upset me was I just didn't know. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame and I am your host. And today we have my friend Danny Hudgens. Danny was born in New Jersey, but he spent most of his childhood moving around the country before finally landing in Orange County, California. His drinking and using started in high school, like so many, but quickly got out of hand. At 17, he was caught smoking weed in a grocery store and was given away to avoid legal trouble. And if his parents were willing to send him to outpatient treatment, then the charges would be dropped. His parents jumped at the chance and thus began a pattern of 15 years in and out of treatment and sober living homes. Danny was in and out of the rooms of AA for 12 years before he landed on his current sobriety date. He accomplished one year of sobriety at least five different times. Many doubted whether or not Danny was capable of sustained recovery, but he kept coming back to his 12-step community knowing that there was something there for him too. Danny finally found sobriety in 2016 after reconnecting with his now wife. The couple quit their jobs and moved to Mexico. Choices that had people questioning their actions, but all the while they were able to support each other in their sobriety. This move was the catalyst to start his business that has found success, despite many of his clients being in the alcohol industry. Danny has been able to maintain his sobriety with the help of prayer, meditation, and support, and his wife and two sons. He is currently living in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he maintains his recovery support and his status as a work in progress. This was such a great episode, really fun. I think it speaks to this idea of keep coming back, never give up. Doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It matters how many times you get up. Don't stop trying because that's what Danny did. I watched him come in and out of recovery of sobriety of the 12 step communities for years, years and years and years. And we all wondered whether or not he was capable of sobriety, capable of being honest with himself and didn't mean we didn't love him. We all loved Danny. It was a blast to be around, but didn't know if sobriety was something that was going to be in his future. And he was really good at convincing himself that his alcoholism was functional because he was able to buy a house and a car and make things look good, keep a job. I think this is a really great story because I know a lot of people struggle with, well, I still have my job. I still have my this. I'm functional. Should I really, could it be, could I really have a problem? And Danny is a great example of what that might look like. So I'm really excited to share this with you all. And I know this will help somebody out there who is struggling. And I just really want people to hear that it doesn't matter how many times you've relapsed or you've struggled or what step you're on. As long as you keep coming back, you have the opportunity to change your life. I'll let Danny tell you the rest. Without further ado, I give you my friend, Danny Hudgens. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. All right. Danny, welcome. That's me. Thank you for for having me. Thank you well, for having me. You know, I was thinking about who could I invite on that could talk about relapse, who I could talk to, who I literally was like, I just don't know if this person is going to get sober. Love him. Great guy. Love when he comes back in. Praying he gets it. Just don't know that. And and I, you took a birthday. How long do you have now? Six. So July 13, 2016. Is this the longest? Times three. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
times yeah, three. Times three. So yeah. I had two years twice. Matter of fact, Tom M last night at our men's meeting got up and shared after I had taken my birthday. And he's like, I've seen Danny take five one-year chips. Yeah. That five one-year chips. That was the story. Yeah. Until, that was the story. Until it wasn't. You know, we talk about in AA is someone is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Correct. And I think that was the question. Is Danny constitutionally incapable? Yeah. A hundred percent. I think, cause I, I don't like it now, but like, I don't know. I used to sell myself as a functioning alcoholic. I had kept a job for 12 years up until I got sober this last time. And then a new chapter began. But I think because outwardly, maybe because it looked like things were semi intact, that probably had some. And then the other part of it was I didn't have any friends other than my friends at Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I went out, as strange as that may seem to some, like I stayed close with probably half a dozen people. Like we still talked every day. It was my way of like, I knew I needed to always be back in the rooms, but it was my way of like holding on to something that I knew I eventually was going to have to go back to because without that, I was definitely afraid. Right. Without, without the 12 step community, you had, you had nothing. Yeah, I think that's like those people helped me stay alive long enough to get back in the rooms, honestly. What was your childhood like? When did you take your first drink? My perception of my childhood has changed as I've gotten sober. Totally. But what hasn't changed is dad went to work, mom stayed home, took care of the kiddos. There wasn't any like physical or sexual or any of that sort of abuse going on. I wouldn't even say really emotional abuse. We bounced around a lot. So at nine years old, we, we, I was born in New Jersey and then we moved to Texas. And then from Texas, we were there for a year and a half. And then we went to San Diego and then we were in San Diego for a couple of years. And then I started eighth grade in Orange County, California. Right. So like at the time, I'm like, we're just a family that moves and dad keeps getting promotions. So not that I had a choice in the matter, but like in hindsight, looking back, I mean, that was really tough as a kid entering eighth grade into a school and not just any place in Orange County and then trying to like fit in at 13 years old. I mean, it was painful. I always, I mean, I didn't start like snorting Coke and drinking it like 11 years old. Like all that started in high school, but up to that first drink, I just... Dude, I had super bad anxiety in like elementary school and middle school to the point where like I was constantly having to go to the nurse's office because my stomach was like in knots and like, and now I look back at that and go, dude, that was just good old fashioned untreated alcoholism. But at the time, my parents were puzzled, you know, he's got the jitters because he's at a new school, but man, I just felt super uncomfortable. What do you remember thinking at the time when you would go to these places about your place in the world, your place in the family, your place in the school? What were some of the thoughts? And and I ask that because people often can relate to when we look back, we can often go, oh my gosh, I, I thought that too. I mean, I was young, right? Like this started happening at 11 years old. And so I have no life experience to reconcile it against. I have no experience whatsoever other than knowing that I'm a new kid in a new school. I go from New Jersey to Texas. This is like what Clint Black and Garth Brooks is like exploding on the scene. It's a totally different environment that I'm used to. I just remember feeling I don't fit in. I think a lot of that had to be to do with just I simply because I was a new kid in the area, right? Like, I don't think I'm like unique in that sense. I think a lot of kids experience that that are not alcoholic. I just think my alcoholism made that that feeling very much compounded. That's a great point. I just want to stop on that real quick. As alcoholics, as addicts, it's not that we're experiencing things that other kids and people aren't experiencing. It's that our reactions are fatal to them. The same exact experience, our reactions are fatal. So you believe that what you felt was relatively normal for your circumstance. 100%. I, I, I didn't have any reason to believe anything else up to that point. My dad's not alcoholic. My mom's not alcoholic. There's some mental health stuff going on in the family, but my brother's not alcoholic, right? So it's not like I grew up in this like raging alcoholic family that I was like, oh, okay. You know, even at 11 year old, because, you know, at 11, you could put things together. I just was like, you know, this is just part of the deal. But then when we moved to San Diego, you know, I'm getting a little bit older and I'm starting to be exposed to the weed and the drinking, but I was still kind of like raised like, we don't do that. So I'm like, okay, we'll, we won't do that. And again, we were only there for a short couple of years. And then we moved to Orange County in eighth grade, ninth grade, again, just, just feeling uncomfortable, just simply feeling uncomfortable, always wanting to fit in, doing whatever I could to fit in. 
And that opportunity presented itself to start smoking some weed and drinking at a high school party. And my parents were like, kids drink and smoke weed in high school. We'll get an 800 number for the house. So that way, if you go out and get banged up, you're not going to get in a car with somebody. You'll like use the 800 number, which I never used once. It was a good thought, but who's going to do that at 15 years old? (laughs) I was too cool, right? I was so concerned about what other people thought of me, that the thought of doing that was just simply out of the question. So you continue on this path and you actually get introduced to recovery relatively early. What is the thing as a teenager that leads people in your life to say, "Uh uh-oh, Danny might need help? Mom. (laughs) Yeah. Mom and dad. My mom grew up with an alcoholic father who eventually stopped drinking and then just stayed dry for 25 years and then passed away of pancreatic cancer, but never any solution, right? Which was very clear, I think, to everybody in the family. So she was, and she would probably admit this. So if she's listening to this at some point, I mean, there's definitely some level of codependency that exists in my family immediately, my wife's family, right? It's just, it's part of the disease, you know? And um, so she had her like, you know, the radars, the beacon was like out at a very early age. And, you know, the trend from what appeared to be normal high school partying, she the radar started going off. And I was working for a grocery store in Los Alamitos at the time on Catella. And I was pushing carts. I was, a, I was a bag boy. And we were out in the parking lot one night with one of the guys on the late night shift. And we started smoking weed in his car on the clock, of course. And like the security guard for that particular business complex was you know, driving around in his golf cart. And he like noticed us in the car. And he noticed us because he had seen us before. And he like asked us to roll down the window. And we're like, we're hot boxing the car. We're clearly not going to roll down the window. So he reported that the grocery store reached out to my parents and they said, Hey, look, I was like 17. They're like, if, if he wants to keep his job, we will help him go and pay for an outpatient. But they use that as a, you know, a a launching point to say, you kind of need to go, you know? So that was, that was my introduction into Alcoholics Anonymous at like 17. So they paid for you or they gave you the opportunity to go to outpatient? I really don't remember, but my, if my memory serves me correctly, I think they paid for it. Wow. Okay. It was a couple, couple nights a week. And when you, you know, you have little kids now, when you think back to that experience, a lot of the time we think we're planting a seed for you. Obviously, this is not a blanket statement for everybody, but for you, was that seed planted too early at a right time? You know, given how things turned out, what do you think about the introduction to recovery at that point in time in your life? I don't know that I would do anything different as a parent today. I think they did what they needed to do and what they, you know, with the tools that they had. You know, naturally, I walk into my first AA meeting with five old people. And by old, they're probably 40, which is my age now. And I was like, well, this is clearly not for me. And I, I heard nothing, absolutely nothing. And then I, you know, I drank vinegar to skate the and skirt the, the piss test for the duration of the program. And that was that. Take me on the journey from getting out of that first outpatient through, you know, in and out of the program or program and programs. Take me on that, on that roller coaster. Oh Lord. Get out. Parents think I have been, you know, adhering to all the rules. Little do they know I've been doing what I do best, manipulating and pivoting. And they're like, Hey, look, you can't drink or do drugs in the house. So if we find out that you're doing that in the house, you're going to have to, you're going to go to a sober living home. I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, and I'm living in, I'm living in Cyprus, California at the time. And I don't know that I'm suffering from something that I completely, utterly powerless over. So I just get out and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to keep doing what makes me feel good. Right. I had identified something in my life that allowed me, which I, what I know now to escape from reality and to feel good. And so I hit it as long as I could. And I've blacked out one time in my entire life. And that was the one. I've blacked out once in my entire life, ever. There's a reason for that. However, we'll get there. I had gone out with a girlfriend at the time and I was supposed to stay the night with her. So at this point, I'm probably 18. And I guess I blacked out and I told her to take me home and I woke up in my bed and I woke up and I called her and I'm like, what, why did you take me home? And she's like, dude, you threw an absolute, absolute temper tantrum and you demanded that I take you home. And I'm like, oh, well, this is bad. Cause I know that I reek of vodka. And, and so what happened was that just started, uh, you know, they put me into a sober living home in Costa Mesa. That's how I find my, found my way to Costa Mesa. And they don't want you drinking in sober living homes. They don't want you bringing females home in sober living homes. And both of those rules I could not seem to follow. I'd stay at one for 30 or 60 days, getting loaded the entire time that eventually I'd walk in, they'd throw a peacock at me. I'd throw it back at them. They'd call my parents. The parents would come get me. 
baffled, puzzled, that get me into another sober living home. And it was just the same thing. I think I lived in 10 or 11 sober living homes. And then I went to Hogue Hospital Treatment Center, like the best of the best, like give you a menu to circle like what you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm like, I say this jokingly, I'd love to go back to one of those places for 30 days right now. I had nothing going on. Like I had zero responsibility. Like my only job was to just go to meetings and stay sober. And like, that was a really tough, that was a tall order. And at the end of the day, I was simply not willing. I was not willing. I had not connected that I, I uh, and I had not accepted that I, I was an alcoholic. And then I can remember me getting out of Ho, staying sober for a little bit, and then getting loaded again. And then they like they were going to put me in Cornerstone, but the insurance money had ran out. So at this point, my parents were like, okay. How old are you? 19. You went to 11 sober living homes in the course of like a year and a half? Yeah, somewhere in there, that range. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It was a pretty big number. And so they're like trying to get me in Cornerstone insurance is capped. And now they're like, my parents aren't rich. They live like a nice, comfortable, modest lifestyle because they're good with their money. And but they're like, do we all the money for this? You clearly we've given you every opportunity in the world and you have shit on it. That's when they, they cut me off and said, give us your car, give us your keys. Here are your rollerblades. Go. Because I played roller hockey. Okay. So my sure. roller, I had my, sure my fanny pack. Did. I had my fanny pack and my roller blades in my backpack. And I had nowhere to go. And so I called. It was a place that like will fund your first two weeks of sober living if you win a found a job. And so like they funded my first two weeks. I got on my roller blades and went into LA Fitness on Valley View. And they had just opened the location and I got a job as a sales guy. And at that point, I was like, okay, all resources are burned. I have absolutely no other option. Maybe I'm going to give this AMA thing a try. And I got a sponsor and I'd like just full in, not because I really believed ultimately that like, I don't know that I, well, I didn't understand what it meant to be powerless. And I don't know that I really understood. I mean, my life was clearly unmanageable, but I didn't really understand what powerlessness meant at that point. But I, I, I got real heavy in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's when like, I got to see like life sober, it could actually be worth trying. And so I got a sponsor and I worked the steps and I, life got good. And I got out of the sober launch pad and I got a girlfriend and then another girlfriend and another girlfriend. And then I thought it was my job to, date as many of the women staying in their women's sober living homes as possible. It's a tough job, but someone has to do it. Right. Yeah. And all the while, you know, I think I'm like the pillar of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Turned 21 sober and I stay sober a little over two years. Mm -hmm. And then that day came where I had no defense against the drink. It was a beautiful summer day in June. And I thought, you know, I've never even drank legally. These last couple of years were great. I'm so glad that I learned a lot about myself. I'm going to go drink. And then I did that for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. (laughs) (laughs) Just hit replay. So a couple things about that. I think one thing that's good to point out, because I have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast who have kids who are struggling. One thing that I think is good to point out is that you were forced on your rollerblades to figure your shit out and that that was a helpful thing that you'd been introduced to where you could go. So you had that knowledge. You didn't feel like there was no way out. You knew there was a way out. And then you were given the opportunity to not have anything and have to go get it. And so the combination of of not having any resources and having to go make it work was a valuable thing for you. And I think that's something to note is that like, you know, I know your parents were going to Al-Anon and that they got a black belt in Al-Anon, as we say, like they were like, you're done. But that was a really great thing for you and allowed you that space. And then the other piece is this experience uh, that we often have, which is you get sober and like 16 and a half years later, it's hard to believe that I'm the same person all the time. There are things I have cross addictions that are really helpful to remember that my brain is still fucked. But I think those are the things that keep me sober today because it's really hard to imagine. I don't even want to stay out past nine o'clock. It's really hard to see me doing an eight ball. Like that sounds horrible to me, but it is easy for me to see other ways in which my addictive mind works. And so what happens is you get two years of sobriety 
sobriety or however long to get away from that last drink, that last drug. And you're like, look how great my life is. I'm not that person anymore. Like it's hard to believe you're still that person. And then you did that cycle. So what was the thought for you? Like, I'm just not that person. That was a phase. What were some of the the catchphrases that your addiction like to spin up for you? I'll just double back to like the Al-Anon thing. That saved my life. Specifically, my parents saying, get the fuck out of our house. And my mom's at my house right now. I moved my mom down here from New Jersey a year ago, right? And so as a dad now, like it like almost brings me to tears because I can remember my mom saying, this has been the most difficult thing I've ever had to go through in my entire life is you showing up at our door and telling you, you cannot come in. And as a dad now, it's just like, oh, like it rips my heart out. And I, for the parents that are going to listen to this, I see it all the time. Ashley, I know you've seen it a hundred million times. And it's like the constant coddling and throwing the money at your kids. It's great for that stepping stone, but I've just watched it kill so many people, man. And it's fucking sad. You know, and I will, I'm going to put a little asterisk, which is that what's scary now is that's different than when you and I were using is that people weren't dying from fentanyl overdoses while using cocaine and methamphetamine. People weren't dying the first time they tried a drug. To add that we are also talking about a little bit of a different time, but... The sentiment is the same, which is if you don't experience the consequences like you did of your use, you just don't have any reason to stop. Your parents being mad at you is not a reason. Your parents being disappointed in you. I remember my parents trying to do that and I was like, I'm really confused. Did you think that that was going to change anything about my life that you're disappointed? Because I literally could not care less how you feel about what I'm doing right now. It has to be these like really intense consequences that we remember and we rise up from. Frothy, emotional appeal seldom suffices, right? What it came down to was I stayed sober by doing some of the work and through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for a little over two years, right? That's The fellowship is an incredibly powerful tool and an environment. And if you really place yourself in the middle of it, and it carried me. But what I failed to recognize was like the 12 steps are not just for them. They're for me too. And that the principles that lie in those 12 steps apply to me. And I didn't have a defense. So like it was only a matter of time before... I woke up and I'm like, it's the bells ringing and I got to go take a drink and I will justify it every which way from Sunday to do so. Can you explain to people who haven't experienced that, what that's like? So like you talk about, so what I, I know what you're saying, but for someone who hasn't been in the fellowship and doesn't know what it like, you worked the steps or you worked some of the steps and then you went to meetings and like, why wouldn't that keep you sober? And then how how women and that validation played a part in taking you out? Like, why didn't that plug the hole? You know, my alcoholism sits between my brain, right? And I see the world a certain way from birth, because I believe I was born with this thing. I was gifted a set of glasses, right? That's why Chuck C wrote that book, A New Pair of Glasses. It has only been my experience through working the 12 steps that 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 shifted perception takes place to where I'm able to then live comfortably in my own skin for extended periods of time. And I didn't have that ex- I didn't have that experience. It was clouded by the fellowship. Dude, when you take a guy that has had no friends, no true friends ever in his life. And you plop him in a room with guys that are traveling all over the world. They're going on vacations. They're they're getting great jobs. And you're watching some of these guys start families. And I was a little young for that at the time. I mean, I was like, I was like Disneyland. I was like, dude, this is in Newport never, Beach, no less. Right. And and you go to all these meetings and like for those that have never been, I live in Wilmington, North Carolina now, right? Smaller meetings, but you walk into the Newport Club in Newport Beach on a Sunday back in like early two thousands, there's like four hundred people there and they're all good looking and you're like, Oh, well, I've arrived. And so, you know, I went on men's retreats and I and I did a lot of the actions, the activities rather. Right. I was I love activities because I'm just a busy bee and I'm a hyperactive kid and still a kid at heart most days. And I didn't have sex until I was 19, right? I couldn't get girls to talk to me. I couldn't get girls to look at me. I couldn't, I just so desperately wanted that. And then when it happened, it was just like the drugs and alcohol. I was like, not only do I want more drugs and alcohol, but I want as much of that validation as I can possibly get. And so you take the drugs and alcohol away. I don't really have a sufficient substitute. I haven't engaged the principles in my life. And so 
I just became a guy that was seeking that female attention, right? Because I just, I had so much, my self-worth and self-esteem was so low that females in particular are what made me feel good about myself. When you would come back, you often would get the same sponsor. I do remember that. Marshall. Yep. Marshall E. And what would happen that would bring you back? So our mutual friend, Tom said, he saw you take one year, five times, right? What were you forgetting? And what were you, what did you think you were coming back to? Like, how did that happen? I was not engaging the whole program hinges on this relationship, with this God that I, I'm supposed to find in Alcoholics Anonymous. My behaviors during the day are either aligned with what God would want for me. It, it ultimately boils down to, am I doing something that's making me become a better person that like, we all have that thing inside of us, that, that indicator that, you know, as I know, it's like that God consciousness. Now I knew that my behavior was like heinous but I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. Right. So like my behavior wasn't changing. So I may have like gone to a, like five meetings a week and sponsoring guys, but yet like my behavior as it related to women specifically, and then maybe even some work stuff. Right. You talked about it at the very beginning. Like I was not being honest. I wasn't being honest with them. And I certainly wasn't being honest with myself. Pages 68, 69 are very clear. If I continue to take actions that are to harm others, I'm quite sure to drink. We're not theorizing. This is a fact of our experience. And I was like, well, that certainly doesn't apply to me. Did you think you were harming others? Like, were you telling yourself you weren't? Oh, no. Because what I would say is, hey, I'm not emotionally available. That was my escape. That was my, that was my out. So, hey, I've been honest with you. And that was, that was what I felt was appropriate because I'm delivering a message to them. Like, I'm not trying to like say I'm ready to get married tomorrow. I want to have kids. I'm just, I'm telling you, like I'm, I'm broken goods and if you're okay with that, then fantastic. But the truth was, is I had some old timers in AA pull me aside one day and said, dude, that's just not how it works. You know that. So what about that is not okay, right? You're giving them, you're telling them the truth and you're giving them the option to engage. I would say in nearly most cases, not all, in most cases, we as humans are not built to behave like that. I don't do anything moderately. If I was doing something, if I was behaving moderately in that way, it probably would have been fine. But I like I do with everything in life, whether it's work or working out, like it is all or nothing. So the degree that I was engaging in that behavior, I mean, it was it was so over the top. Going on 30 Tinder dates in a week isn't exactly... 30? But no, there were days where I was doing two or three coffee dates a day. Yeah, for sure. Oh, God. That sounds emotionally exhausting, even if you were getting laid. It's actually a really great example. Like, look, we are with partners. We are, you know, the world thinks we're grownups now. And, you know, when we got sober in our 20s, or me at 19, and you know, in our 20s, right? Like we were teenagers still continuing teenagehood into our 20s, most of us. And we were trying to like party and do all the things that 20 year olds were doing and blaming it on being loaded. Like they were blaming it on being loaded. We were like, fuck, we're sober and we're doing it anyway. I don't think it's that different. I think that we just didn't have that. Pe- we are so much more aware of it. You going on that many coffee dates in a day is fantastic because it's a perfect example of like literally how out of control we are with everything we do because that just doesn't even sound fun. Like there is a limit to how many people you want to hook up with where it's now a chore and not fun anymore. Correct. It was just like drinking, right? It was progressive. The more progressive I got, the more empty it became, the more soulless I I started to feel. And just like with drinking and drugs, eventually you get to a point where it's just simply not working. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community, and I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, 
trained peer support providers and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lion Rock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. When you look back, or I should say, when you talk to new guys or people who are struggling with relapse and you tell them about your experience and you're trying to save them from the 12 years of in and out that you experienced, what are some of the things specifically that you share with them that they could do differently? It's interesting, right? Like my position on the guy that can't stay sober now. Yeah, I no longer like Captain Save AA. You know, like it took what it took for me. And I think that like I had always classified myself as somebody that was special and unique. And the day that I became just another guy in Alcoholics Anonymous was when I started to I started to like truly recover, right? So like what I would say is just do the work that's outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book, right? Like go to meetings. Like when I sponsor guys, I say, go to a meeting a day, call three guys, here are three phone numbers. I don't care if you know them. I don't care if you want to call them. If that, whether I want to do things or not has no bearing on anything anymore, right? Like my life is literally a string of things that I don't want to do. Same. <laughs> so... You know, we're really, we're really selling this sobriety thing here. Yeah. But like, those were the small fundamentals at the beginning that like, I could wrap my head around. Okay. I don't want to call this guy. So that means I should probably call this guy. It's not going to kill me. I don't want to go to this meeting. So I should go to the meeting. I don't want to meet my sponsor and work staff. So I'm going to do that. Right. And he's literally hour by hour, day by day. Isn't that miserable? Why do I want to live a life where I'm just constantly doing things I don't want to do? Go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and take a look around and see how badass some of these guys and women lives are and then tell me that you don't want that. So you're saying these are the things I have to do to get that? 100%. Yeah. If you just do these things that we're telling you to do, you are going to recover. But that's the crux. That's the, the paradox of Alcoholics Anonymous. We give you a clear outline of what needs to be done. And I was given to me and I'm like, I'll do 60% of it. And then I got 60, 60% of the results. What was different about the last time that you got sober? It had gotten really progressive, right? Just the, just the, just all the things that we do. And it had progressed. My drinking had progressed. The use of the drugs had progressed. I had been living with a guy named Rob. Rest in peace, Rob. And he had come to me one day and he said, Hey, you know, when was the last time you talked to Lindsay L? And I was like, I don't know, years ago, you know? And so that couple of weeks had gone by and naturally, right? Like I'm Danny H and I'm drinking, I'm drinking at this time. And, uh, I'm feeling very hopeless. I forced myself down to the beach for a run and they could just like binge for three days. And just, it was just this very, very bad cycle. And so I'm like sitting on the couch one day and like, I find this person on Instagram and happens to be her birthday. And I'm like, somebody maybe might make me feel better. And it's just like, yeah, like I'll go to the beach with you and your dog. Right. Mind you, this person's six years sober. And we reconnect, we go to the beach and we start to hang out a little bit more frequently. Something was inexplicably different with the way I started to feel towards this person after just a few short weeks. Meanwhile, I'm drinking, right? So I know when she goes to meetings. So the night she goes to meetings, Danny goes out and gets banged up. And for a couple of months, you would ask me what was different. And this is, this is what's really fascinating about my story. And I, I hope it'll help somebody. After a couple of months of dating, this person started to get a clear picture because she's like, well, you were sober for, you were in and around AA for 15 years. Like what, what, are you, what exactly are you doing? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like I'm a salesman by, by nature. So I'm like trying to sell her this bag of shit. And whether she bought it or not, like it worked for like two months. And then she was like, hey, why don't you come up and meet my family in Los Angeles? They're in town for my stepdad's 
families, some sort of gathering. And so we went to dinner and I'm drinking beer because I'm normal and I'm like a gentleman. And her stepdad, who's a successful attorney, very strong personality, clearly had heard my history, looks me in the eyes and says, so can you help me understand how you're reconciling your behavior right now with your past? Like out of thin air. Wow. And I was like, shots fired. Dude gives me chills to this day. And I was like, Oh fuck. And I fancy myself pretty quick on my toes. And I, I think I did my best to like try to climb my way out of that question. But I left there thinking like, fuck. And then another week went by and I didn't know this, but this, this woman told her sponsor, like, he's got a week. He's got a week. Because it's clear to me that he needs to be sober. And her being a really good Al-Anon knew I needed to do it for me. And she wasn't going to try to get involved. And I literally, within like a week of that conversation with her stepdad, I like woke up one morning. I'm like, I'm going to burn this to the ground. And I think there might be something different about this person. So I called my Eskimo Brett for my Tuesday night men's group. And I said, dude, I think I need to get sober again for the 400th time. And he said, Monday, bro. Oh, fuck. Terrible, dude. That phone call. Terrible. Were you like, I don't even take myself seriously at this point? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, how many times have I drug my tail between my legs into that Monday back day men's stag meeting at 12.15 and raised my hand as the new guy? And they're all just like, well, Danny's back again. We're glad you're not dead, dude. Nice to see you. And then, you know, I get super offended when people would say, what do you think you're going to do different this time? Nothing upset me more. But the truth was and why it upset me was I just didn't know. So you called him, you go to this meeting and it feels different this time. I went to the, yeah, I went to the meetings, honestly, because I didn't want, I didn't want to lose the girl. I knew that I needed to be there, but my motive for being there was not, was not in the right place at that time. And I knew that I needed a new experience. And somebody had told me a, a set of prayer, a set aside prayer and had shared that with me a long time ago. And, you know, God helped me to set aside everything. I think I know about Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps that I can have a new experience with you, God. And so I started saying that every day, multiple times a day. And I got a new sponsor and uh, he had been sober multiple decades. And he sat down with me one day and he says, Danny, do you think you can be honest with yourself and with me? And I said, well, yeah, dude, for sure. And he looked at me and smiled because he knew I wasn't being honest. And I started praying for the willingness to be like truly fucking honest for the first time in my life consistently. What was the truth? What, what was or the lie? I think one of the lies was I thought I knew what it meant to be powerless. And my understanding and, and experience and definition of powerlessness has changed. And that means for a guy like me, if I am not doing all of Alcoholics Anonymous and practicing those principles in my life, day in and day out for the rest of my life, to the best of my ability, and I'm going to fuck up, Lord knows I've made some fucking, some silly mistakes and, I've, and I'm not living like a fucking saint lifehood, but I strive to do better and I want to do better. It's not like I'm not living Danny's old lifestyle sober anymore. It's I have a genuine desire to become a better human being and to be. And if I stop doing those things, it is only a matter of time before I get loaded again. And I, to my core, know that 1000%. And like, I never connected those dots. I don't know why it took 20 years, but that was my experience. You and this this woman um, are married now and you guys have two kids. And at one point you moved to Mexico. How were you able to stay sober and do that? And what was why Mexico? The storyline is really funny, right? I really were like four months dating and I want her to move in with me. And she goes, dude, no fucking chance. Work all 12 steps and sponsor guys. I'll move in with you. Well, guess what I did? I worked all 12 steps very quickly and I started sponsoring guys. And so for the people that are listening to this, I think it's really important, right? We always hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to do it for yourself. I do genuinely ultimately believe that. However, the results were the same. I did it because I wanted this woman to live with me. It wasn't because Danny was striving to be this beautiful human being, right? And so I think it's important. I hope somebody hears that and connects with that because I hear a lot of people come in and it's for their kids and for this. Well, I can't do it for my kids. You can, right? Just do the fucking work and you will get those results. So then we, she moves in with me and we get this great idea that we're going to move to Mexico. Tom M and Stephanie M had moved to Mexico. And so we're, I'm seven months sober. I've been at my job for 12 years. She had had her job for four years and she had been sober a number of years. And like, we go to our, our families and our AA families and we're kind of like, Hey, like we want to move to Mexico. I want to quit my job and start a business. And they're like, 
our families thought we were kind of crazy. They thought it was a cute idea, but they thought we were crazy. But our sponsors, both, then they don't know each other. They were just like, dude, you can do anything you want. If you guys keep God and Alcoholics Anonymous first, do whatever you want. And like, when I heard that, I was like, well, let's fucking hall pass. Let's go. We're going to Mexico, <laughs> right? And so that's what we did. We quit our jobs and we uh, we packed up and lived in Mexico for almost a year. And uh, what was it like being sober in another country? Cozumel is an incredibly sleepy, tiny town, right? So there's one meeting a day with like 12 expats, the same 12 faces every single day. And for a guy that is as high strong as I am, that is constantly moving a million miles a minute and moves from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, it really presented an opportunity to slow way down. And I had a lot more time with Danny, no kids at that point, right? So there's just all this time, you know? And there were moments that it was really tough, but we went to meetings every day and I stayed connected. We built a really great fellowship of incredible people there. And one of the guys at that meeting that we became very dear friends with, he ended up marrying us. That's cool. That's awesome. How has your progression in your recovery, like you got when you got to that two year mark, right? That or that one year mark, did you have any squirrely feelings? And what has it been like to stay sober six years? Honestly, I think like the first three or four years were like autopilot, right? Obviously, we stayed in in Mexico for a year and we came back and we decided we wanted to maybe move somewhere else. And so we identified Wilmington as a, as a good spot to land and potentially start a family. So we moved out here and immediately we plugged ourselves out with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had already had a, a good dear friend had moved out here before me. And, and it was just like one foot in front of the other, just doing Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, being a good fiance. We got engaged in Mexico and it wasn't until we started having children and then the business that I started that I thought was really just going to be me and maybe like one other person and I wouldn't work for the man and it would just be me and you know we would live a decent life and little small town Wilmington it wasn't until the business started to take off and the children were entering into our lives that like that's when life became a lot more challenging tell me about that <laughs> I mean you take somebody that by default is just filled with self and any parent that's listening understands you bring children into the world and it is all of a sudden not about you anymore you know just like endless amounts of opportunities to like not think about Danny and furthermore learning how to like it's like PhD for relationships having a relationship with no children is totally different than inviting children in and it it really disrupts what you might have thought was this easy flowing relationship. Not that we didn't have our challenges before, but it really, it gave us a run for our money on how to really use those principles in our marriage and in the way we were going to raise our children. And it's not been easy. It has been beautiful, but I don't think I've ever been challenged more than with that dynamic. And I, and I say that in a positive way, like I've found more growth in that than I have in anything else I've ever experienced. I think something that's been interesting for me getting married, being sober is that the amount of work that we did before we got married, therapy, meetings, trials, triumphs, moving in together, having dogs, like the, whatever the things were, the, the, the obstacles that we overcame, they were incredible building blocks to the foundation of our relationship that we're going to help steady us when the bomb of children hit, which is a bomb, right? Like it is, sure. just drops and it shakes the foundation. And what I, I've seen around me is that when you have like language and tools and support and principles that are required for us to remain sober, like we didn't, we're not doing this because it's like a good person contest because that's not why we're, we're doing it for selfish interests, but because we're both doing it and because we have the common language, a common place to go, we understand the rules of engagement. It has been a lot more doable than a lot of people I've watched where they don't, even when one person has it and the other doesn't, because my husband and I understand the rules of engagement, right? Like in the sense of, you know, the rules of engagement are each person is straight up entitled to going to meetings and self-care. 
period, end of story. We know that it's the same as, you know, going to the bathroom and taking a shower. Like it is a understanding. And what I notice in other relationships is that there isn't that self-care is not seen in the same light. It's, it's seen as selfish or because we have this fatal disease, we actually have to work our life and our relationship differently. But there's also, we have fatal reactions to extreme stress and issues. And so that also comes up too. Right. Yeah. No, I think you, I think you nailed it. You, you, you said that very eloquently. I definitely feel like that was our experience. We did a lot of work, all the same things that you talked about therapy and, you know, therapy has this still has this weird stigma when I talk to people and um, in and outside of the rooms and it's crazy. And we have found it to be just a tremendous tool outside of just you know, sponsorship with AA. And yeah, I definitely think it, it positioned us to be prepared for you know, the earthquake that was about to take place and a beautiful earthquake. I don't know how I even lived prior. Like it seems like it was a lifetime ago and it's, it's only been four years, but I'm so grateful that we had that time before. Yes. Because I don't know what, <laughs> what it could have looked like without it. I want to close out with your feelings pitch, so to speak, on couples counseling for people who are sober and resistant and that kind of thing. What would you say to guys who are like, I'm not going to fucking couples counseling so that your therapist can talk shit to me and tell me how I'm bad or wrong? I believe that human relationships are the most difficult thing we will ever do in life. Just relationships, whether it's employees or friends, like dude, to have a healthy relationship requires so much work and so much compromise. And then you, then you're talking about a significant other that you're married to and raising children with to think that I'm going to navigate a relationship like relatively successfully is I, I think is crazy for me anyway. And so we have really, really found it helpful to, I mean, we've seen a number of therapists over the years since we've been together and we still see one today and it's been freaking amazing. Fortunately for us, we both are used to talking in that environment. So it hasn't been that challenging for both of us to go in there and just open up. So I think we're like, we've been blessed in that arena, but to have a third party, non-objective individual or a non-biased individual sit there and just provide like really direct feedback on a situation that somebody that's very skilled in their, in their world is freaking amazing. Like everybody should see a therapist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for people who have struggled with compulsive relationships in addiction, how has that affected your marriage and what do you guys do to work on that? So my husband and I both sought attention from the opposite sex also in AA and whatever. And so making a commitment to be with one person for, you know, one day at a time for the rest of our lives, both of us had honest feelings about how that, gosh, like it's really hard to be with one person and, and not have that like excitement and not be new and not blah, blah, blah. That's how we manage it by like talking about it. How do you guys manage the difficulty of this addict need of like love, dopamine, you know, whatever? I think, you know, for a period of time, children are really good distractions. If you pump your life full enough with work and children, there's often not enough time in the day to even think about anything else. And I think that's what had happened the last year and a half, two years, or even a little bit longer. And so for us, we, we do our date days. I'd love to tell you we're like freaking black belts in communication, but we're not, right? Like that's one thing that we're constantly working on and striving towards. But I think even most recently, it is the dust is starting to settle again, right? Our youngest is going to be two years old and my business is not as bonkers as it was. And I'm starting to like see things again. And I'm kind of coming out of the hurricane cellar and I'm like, oh boy, I, I could have made some better decisions the last couple of years with where I was spending my attention with business primarily. And and I think how we're navigating that now is we're, we're seeking therapy, right? It, we're communicating. We're getting back to what makes us happy in the relationship? What makes my wife happy? What makes Danny happy? And like literally just the other night, we did it on Apple Notes and I literally sent it to her. I said, these are the things that makes Danny happy. And she said, these are the things that makes Lindsay happy. We now have a, a tool, right? And like us being able to do that is a big step because 
we're now able to take action against those things. And that's a whole other thing, right? It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to act and engage in that. And what happened for me specifically over these last couple of years is that I became so engulfed with the blessings of Alcoholics Anonymous that like it's been this very slow process that literally it's it's funny the timing of us doing this. It's like literally been the last few days where I've like had some really strong moments of clarity where like I can like look back and it's been this slow process of me just doing a little bit less and less and less of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't thought about drinking and I spend my world, I live and breathe alcohol for work, which is ironic, but but the way that that comes out at home can make an impact. In ways where you're just not aware of other people's needs, things like that? Yeah, just consumed with self. Then that blanket of delusion starts to set in again, where I think I'm being selfless. I think I'm being intentional with my time. I think I'm being a good listener until you find out in the curtains are and you're like, and you have that moment, and you're like, holy shit, like there's still so much work to be done. I'm so grateful for my wife's patience and her dedication to the family. Like, it's all, I have, I have a very, very skewed perception at times, and that can be very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say this and I mean this. I've watched you for almost probably like 18 years now. I've watched you. And that sounds so creepy, uh, but it is so exciting and so amazing and such a fucking testament to the work that is offered and that we do and that you have done that you've been able to stay sober for six years. I mean, it's just like, that was not guaranteed for you. And so it's really cool. And I'm so grateful that you did it for Lindsay because it turns out it works for you as, you know, it ended up being for you. So it's amazing. And and I'm just really proud, like in a non-patronizing way, just super proud of you and excited for you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I, I, it's people like you and Dak and the many others, right? That stayed the course. We're all teachers, whether we know it or not, right? And so like, it's people like you, whether you've known it or not, but there's so many that just, they stayed the course and I got to watch from afar, you know, and those are the people that gave hope when somebody like me walks back in the rooms. Because without those people, there is no hope. I, I hope that I can now be that guy for those people that are are just a couple paces behind me you or in front of me. Yeah, you definitely are. And I think that the real like message of your story is just keep fucking coming back no matter what. Walk through that door, shame in your hand, in your heart, keep coming back no matter what. I would have missed it. I would have missed it. That would have been a big, uh, a big shame. So I'm, I'm grateful that I had a little bit, a little bit of grace one last time. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, congratulations and thank you for coming on and telling your story. Well, thank you for having me and so good to see you. You too. You too. Well, that was awesome. What did you think, Scott Lee? I, I thought it was great. I thought it was great as always. I do want to take, you know, I want to get serious here for a minute. Oh, and I, man. And okay. I, want to, I want to get up on my soapbox and I just want to talk about the stigma that rollerblading is going through. Danny talks about it. You, you saw how quickly he had to cover that up talking about I getting kicked, kicked out of the house. I was a hockey player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roller Danny, hockey. I was like, mm-hmm. Danny, rollerblading is fun. Okay. Let me just tell you that I... <laughs> have re reignited my love of rollerblade within the last year because of a targeted Instagram ad. And I have now talked four people in my same age bracket into buying rollerblades. And let me tell you, they haven't been happier ever in their life. <laughs> they, they, they're just, they're just reliving middle school all over again. You know, it's just, it's what just, what were you doing in middle school? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you not, you are basically my exact same age and yep. you were not wearing Jinkos and not into skater dudes. BMX bikes and skateboards. Yes. Inline skating. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's the worst of them, but I'm saying I did it. I enjoyed it. I just want you to know that this is permanent. <laughs> you can't take this back once this goes out live. Okay, I edit also, this. I can take out, I can make it look as good as I want to look. That's in this, true. That's you know? true. I'd love to see you do that with this one. But here's the other thing about that. Do you tell dad jokes while you're rollerblading? <laughs> 
asking for well, a friend. I have a, I have a piece of paper that's in my fanny pack and I pick it out mm-hmm. and I read the jokes, but you know, I'm just saying it's, uh, I think it's time for, for all those closet rollerbladers to come out, you know, that's right. We <laughs> support you. Come out, come out of the rollerblading closet. No, I thought this was like, it was sort of an episode where so many of the elements that you talk about in our Q and a episodes or that come up, it was like in one person, in one mm-hmm. story, so mm-hmm. many of those features came up. It was like, here's the reason for you to be firm, parents. Like, even though it was really challenging, you did it in a way where there was, he saw the exit, he knew the way out, and you held it. And that was important. You saw what it was like to relapse and have to keep coming back. And w- what can happen when you keep coming back? You saw, like, there were so many features of things that we talk about in the QA episodes and that are just recurring things. He's a real person, people. We didn't make him up but he his story really speaks to so many of those really important concepts that you hear us talking about an awful lot yeah i have this privilege of having seen danny come in and out for so many years and having seen him in his compulsive dating phase and to see him now and the change even as the work in progress that he is and that he talked about it is really remarkable he he's really grown up in a myriad of ways and i have been amazed over the course of my time being in recovery and exposed to recovery who ends up staying sober and who does not. It has shocked me over and over again. You think you know how it's going to turn out. And so often people blow your mind with the revelations that they have. And I just, I also think that the functional alcoholic is so tricky for people because they're like, but I don't look like this person or that person. And I'm healthy other than this gallon of vodka I'm drinking. And I, you know, I was very thankful that you could react for me and everyone else when you talked about how exhausting two to three coffee dates a day was. I literally was like, oh my God, it sounds awful. Oh my gosh. It's telling about the need that we have for this validation and how clear it is that we are doing the behavior differently than normal people. I think that's what's so funny about it is like you're going on three coffee dates a day. Like nobody wants to do that. It has to be a compulsive behavior trying to get a need met in order to do that because it's so extreme. We will take that attitude towards drugs and alcohol, towards whatever, and we will throw it in every which way to try to get the the need met, which is you know, validation, feeling better, comfort, whatever. Yeah. And I just, I, like you said, I love the storm shelter coming out of the hurricane shelter thing, right? Cause anybody who's had kids and, you know, I'm sure the listeners, a lot of them are in that same boat and they can understand that world where you're just in survival mode. You're just a million people have talked about it a million different ways and you just don't really believe it until you're in the middle of it. And you're like, do very basic things. I have to work hard to like get in the shower. Yeah, it's really, it's like you can't, I mean, the other day I was like in the shower and the both the twins come running in and they swing the door open and they're like, oh, mom, I see your boobies. I'm like, you know, could I? take a shower without you guys commenting on my like what the fuck it's a level of constance in your life constant chaos constant need constant 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 that i don't think any of us have ever experienced it my favorite is like well, you got to put yourself first, Ash. Your recovery comes first. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. My recovery comes first. Yeah. You know what? I have two infants shitting and needing to be fed. But you're right. You're right. My recovery definitely comes first. But yeah, Danny's story, I think it's just so relatable. I love it. This turnaround is good. Keep going. I hope the people that need to hear that episode got a chance to hear it. and Send it to all wow. your friends relapse. Send it to him. Danny gives us hope that you can you can make it work. You can. He's get a there. dopeless hope fiend. <laughs> you want to take that again, or you want to you want to leave that? We're gonna leave that in. He's a dopeless hope fiend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, switching gears a little bit. I want to thank Michelle who left us a review on July nineteenth, calling us the most helpful recovery podcast. 
She said, I am beyond grateful for this podcast. As a parent of an addict, I listen to the courage to change for hope and encouragement. Ashley shares honest, raw stories about herself and in her interviews. Michelle, thank you so much for being a listener, for the review. Much appreciated. If any of you want to know how you can support this podcast, it is free for you to go and leave us a review Five stars helps if you think we deserve it. And to write a review is even more helpful. This is podcast currency. You can do it in Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you get your podcasts. As you're writing a review, I would really appreciate that. Don't hold this against Ashley. What's about to happen next? It's not her fault. It's happening against her will. I do not uh, consent. No, she does not. Ashley. Yes. My friend keeps saying, cheer up, man. It could be worse. You could be stuck underground in a hole full of water. I know he means well. It's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> you guys get it? Well, a get well it? is a hole. Get it? Has a person ever said it could be worse? We could be in a well? Is that an expression that people say? No, but I mean, I guess if you're drinking and using, that's probably <laughs> real. Could, like that would have been accurate for me a few times. Well, we're rooting for you this week. We hope this week is great. I hope that you decide to come out of the closet with your rollerblading love. The wait, way wait, that wait, I wait, did. wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold, please. Hold, please. Hold, please. Hold, please. If you are still drinking, please do not buy yourself a pair of rollerblades right now. That's a good PSA. If you're not drinking, you can get yourself some rollerblades. If you are drinking, wait till you're sober. Also to the people who are struggling with relapse, going in and out, in and out, in and out, filled with shame. You don't want to make that last phone call you don't want to call it's okay we all have been there and the ones that haven't they still understand that that could be them so please pick up the phone do not hesitate to call we are not judging you we want you to be there hang in there and we'll see you next week this podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.